The views and opinions expressed by the following program are those of the hosts, guests, and callers, and are not necessarily those of this station or Webster Rock Hill Ministries, its management or other hosts or underwriting sponsors. Programs presented by KWRHLP are for educational and entertainment purposes only. Welcome back to In Tune. This is Arnold Stricker with Ellie Wharton. We're going to be continuing our conversation about Pearl Harbor and the 77th anniversary of that fateful day, the date that will live in infamy, as uh, President Franklin Roosevelt said so well in our previous uh, hour. But on the line, we have uh, Professor uh, John McManus, who is an award-winning professor, author, and military historian. He is the Curator's Distinguished Professor of U.S. Military History at the Missouri University of Science and Technology, and this is bestowed by the Board of Curators on the most outstanding scholars in the UM system. He is the, uh, he's the author of 12 well-received books on military topics and military history. He has appeared on dozens of local, national radio programs, CNN, Fox News, C-SPAN, Military Channel, Discovery Channel, National Geographic Channel, Netflix, Smithsonian Channel, History Channel, PBS, and... KWRHLP, 92.9 FM. Welcome, John, to In Tune. Hey, thanks for having me. And you're a St. Louis native, too, right? You got it. I grew up in St. Louis, and uh, I'm, a, I'm a proud native and a proud resident. And I was looking at your background. You have a degree in sports journalism. So how does the leap to military historian happen? <laughs> yeah, um, I actually you know, went to the University of Missouri, you know, as you, as you mentioned, or sports journalism, uh, but you know, as I was was going through that program, uh, I found that I was taking any history class I, you know, could possibly take, and ended up with, a, with the equivalent of a minor. And I found that it, you know, really a lot of the same skills and training equated on on both sides. And I, I just kind of figured, I guess, that uh, I had a little bit more of a passion for for the study of military history, and that I would be doing much the same kind of things. So I'm, I'm really glad I did it. I've, really never looked back. Now, did you have this love for history kind of growing up, or was it something that was developed while you were at uh, Mizzou? I really did. Uh, you know, I, I was the kid who was, you know, seven years old at the county library, um, you know, checking any book out that I could about World War II. Um, and what actually really kind of drew me to the topic um, as, I, as I got a little older was this, maybe also like a sense of frustration that it seemed like a lot of history was done from the top down or from a very kind of, um, you know, clinical disassociated kind of point of view of the big picture. And not that that's not important, but I wondered, you know, what are these events, particularly what, what were the battles like for those who actually had to fight them? And I didn't, I didn't feel like there was enough emphasis on that. And so, you know, when I got old enough to pursue this career, uh, I decided really that that was one, a side of history that needed greater illumination that I would kind of go in that direction. So most of my books, tend to, to be written from the bottom-up perspective, but with an appreciation and understanding of how people are affected by the great events and great forces of the time. Pearl Harbor is a classic example of, you know, the, the guy who's under the bombs. Um, you know, how has it gotten to that point that the Japanese and the Americans are tangling here on that day? And, and uh, you know, then what is it like for those who are there? And you, when you were at, uh, got your Ph.D. from University of Tennessee, you did, you were instrumental in talking to and recording uh, veterans from World War II about their stories, correct? 
Right. That's why I went to the University of Tennessee, because at the time, uh, Dr. Charles Johnson had a very large, uh, pretty major project going called the, the World War II Veterans Project. And his task was to gather as much firsthand material from World War II veterans as possible so that we could preserve the stories, whether, you know, in written format from the time, if somebody kept a diary or wrote letters home, you know, that kind of thing, or if they wrote memoirs later, or quite commonly what we did is we just... Uh, fanned out far and wide and, and interviewed people um, so that, so that you know, as the decades go on, and unfortunately, as the generation passes, um, you know, those accounts will be there for historians, uh, you know, long after, after we're gone. Um, so that, to me, was the, the kind of human story that drew me uh, into, into the, the passion for the topic. And uh, Dr. Johnson did some really seminal work. So I'm very fortunate that I got to be a part of that. Now, we, we have uh, kind of laid some groundwork about what happened uh, prior to the, the reason for the attack and what was going on with Japan and their invasion of China and Indochina and um, the thought that, and you can kind of correct me at any point, uh, because I like to have my history correct. Uh, one of the things we like to do on the show, and Ellie's busy on her computer kind of checking some facts out uh, as we're talking, is um, I always like to have... The, facts correct, gaps plugged up that are gaps with other information that maybe, well, that, was, that would have been nice to know uh, at the time when I was uh, taught this. So if, if you could sum up in a, a general statement and then with a, an explanation of what was this whole conflict with Japan and the United States about? Was it about oil? Was it about um, uh, Japan taking over territories uh, like like in China and invading, there were a couple, I think like three incidents which kind of pushed the buttons of the United States. There was a ship that was sunk, I remember. Um, there was a, an ambassador that was kind of slapped by a military soldier, which kind of was adding insult to injury. What was the, the tipping point that kind of sprung all this into action? Yeah, I think there's a couple of sources. Um, certainly resources, especially from a, from a Japanese point of view, that uh, as Japan industrialized by the early 20th century, it became very clear that uh, in order to have any kind of parity with the larger imperial powers and, and the you know European imperial powers and the, and the USA, uh, that Japan would have to have access to its own strain of, of resources, primarily oil and iron ore, uh, you know, for the for the making of steel. And of course, the home islands just just did not have that. Um, so Japan began to look outward. Um, to, to try and carve out uh, a continental empire for itself at the expense of China. Um, that's what the army wanted, the Imperial Japanese Army. The Imperial Navy was really thinking in terms of a, of a kind of Pacific Rim empire, especially at the expense of um, what was called the Dutch East Indies in those days, a kind of sort of sclerotic edifice of uh, what had been a Dutch empire in what is today Indonesia. But there was a lot of you know, like oil, rubber, tin, bauxite, magnesium, all these kind of goodies the Japanese wanted. Well, from an American perspective, the Americans have been heavily invested in a balance of power in the Asia-Pacific Rim for decades. And that was sort of manifested in what was called the open door to China, uh, in which uh, European powers, the USA and Japan, had all participated economically on their own terms in China, really at the Chinese expense. Um, and no one was too strong and no one too weak. Well, Japan starts to, to think about upsetting that balance of power. And uh, this is happening by, you know, 1940 and 41. The U.S. reaction to that is to, to start, um, you know, putting diplomatic pressure on, but also eventually, most in a most extreme sense, 
an embargo. And, and, and really, in the most direct sense, that's what leads to the, the Pearl Harbor attack and the decision for the Japanese to go to war, um, because they feel they have to have American iron ore, scrap iron, steel, oil. Um, otherwise, you know, they're, they're going to be in a uh, subordinate status forever after, and they see it as an existential crisis. So what's really interesting to me as a historian is that the average American sees Pearl Harbor as just sort of this you know, sucker punch out of nowhere and, and, and the ultimate in sort of perfidy and infamy and, and treacher, treacherous kind of actions. But really, it was quite a logical sort of capstone to the tension that had been building for many, many months. Um, so the Japanese try and, you know, land this punch against what is a stronger foe in the hopes of crippling them uh, to have a shorter war and, and conclude it on their terms. But see, it goes back to what I was saying before you came on, before you came on the air, John, you know, it's kind of like the Haggis effect. You know, a problem is created, then you lay blame on others, but the result is go to war. And we see it again, and we see that pattern again and again and again. You know, we look at World War One again with the Lusitania. You know, then all of a sudden everybody is up in arms because the Lusitania gets bombed by the Germans and loss of life. We see it again on December 7th with Pearl Harbor. We see it again at 9-11. We see it again and again and again, and again, what happens is that the communication that's given to the people, again, because we know that history is his story, is always diluted, and then we're taught the wrong thing. So that we're, we're taught to look at things in a very skewed manner. How do we correct? How do we correct these types of what I call miseducations? Well, I think one thing is that our, perhaps our, our leaders have a good grasp of, of history and the mistakes that have been made in the past and, and maybe start to to learn and address that. And I think also from a sort of average person point of view, uh, I guess as a you know humanities professor on, on that side of the house, I always believe very strongly in the idea of understanding how to gather information and, and uh, to think critically and to, to assess the information you're getting and, and you know, to, to realize that, um, you know, not everything is black and white and that sometimes you're operating on partial information in the daily events and it's hard to sort things out and, and you know, to perhaps try and step back from, from whatever seems to be happening at the time and assessing it as rationally as you can. It's very difficult. It really is. And, uh, yeah. you know, Especially when, when, when you war look... happens. Go, go on. Sorry. Go on, John. Yeah, when war happens, it's usually, you know, a failure on, on the part of everyone involved for whatever reason and you know i'm not necessarily here to justify what the japanese did at pearl harbor i mean certainly it is a day of infamy um but i i can also say that you know if, you're, if we really study the war um you know you you see the progression that was leading to this that's and, right uh, you see you know you see the perspective of both sides and, um so and you know and, and you know as we as we get more distant from it it's possible to study it less emotionally. And I, I think maybe that's the key. That's the advantage historians always have. But if we are never taught the intricacies, you know, I mean, I can even go even further back. Let's go back to the Revolutionary War. Let's go back to the Civil War. You know, people thinking that the Civil War was fought primarily over slavery when we know that that's not the case. That was not the case. You know, and we look at all of this and how history is written. And it's always written from the perspective of the victor. And, it, and, it, and the goal is to make the others look bad. I mean, but when we look at things like no aircraft carriers were present, you know, no communications and operations facilities were damaged. 
We talk about the great loss of the warships, but actually only uh, of the eight ships, six were raised and were able to be used, and the two others provided armament, you know, to, sal- to be salvaged for the other ships. That's, that's a historical and that's historical information that's not being given to us, our children, ourselves, to know the reality of the history. Well, the, you know, the history is there for anyone who wants to study it. By now, there's been great scholarship by Gordon Prang and, and Walter Lord and so many others that, you know, it's possible if you really want to explore it, you can, you can start to get within the depths of that. And you're right in the sense that, of course, we all know what happens on December 7, 1941, um, really understanding the layers of it, as you said, the aircraft carriers are not present. Uh, that was a real break for the Americans that day because they, as it turned out in the war, tended to be the most important ships. Um, the uh, the battleships, you know, the eight that are sunk, six eventually see service again. But, of course, most notably, the one that remains there today is the USS Arizona, where you have about, about half the American loss of life that day was aboard that ship. Exactly. Roughly. Yeah. Uh, you know, so and especially yeah, because there are, we, there are really a lot of layers to it, right? Especially since the fact of it is, is that those ships le- left Japan like twelve days prior. So you know, when we talk about this, this sneak attack kind of thing, you know, it's like you got all of these, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of warships heading your way. To me, that's not a secret. Well, it, it uh, they as far as you know, we we start now get into the the sort of intelligence gathering and what uh, what the Americans knew and what they didn't. Um, they they knew a Japanese fleet was at sea, proceeding eastward. Um, they did not necessarily have good you know hands on intel that an attack was coming at Pearl Harbor at such and such a time. Um, they also made some mistakes. You know, it's like a lot of these things. It's a bit of a perfect storm. Um, uh, they didn't have combat air patrol, you know, of their planes over the harbor that day. Uh, they had uh, they had taken the torpedo nets up um, from from the harbor. And why did they do that? Because it was just a real pain to maneuver in the harbor with those torpedo nets around. And they did not believe the Japanese would be able to to, to have torpedoes that could run in those shallow waters. They were wrong. Um, you know, they, the USS Ward. Uh, we tend to forget this side of the Pearl Harbor attack. There was a submarine aspect to it on the Japanese side. They had small, what were called midget subs at the time. A two-man crew uh, would wait outside the mouth of the harbor, and then as, pl- as ships started to, to uh, retreat to try and get away from the, the attack of the planes, they would sink uh, these ships. That was the plan. Well, one of these submarines tried to follow um, an American ship into the harbor even before the attack, about an hour and a half before, and the USS Ward which, by the way, had a brand-new skipper that day, um, brand-new guy running the ship. Um, you know, the USS Ward tracked down this sub and sank it about, a, oh, about 45 minutes or so before the, the plane, the Japanese planes got there. Well, by the time the communication uh, ends up in the hands of Admiral Husband Kimmel, the, uh, the commander the chief of the Pacific Fleet, um, it's almost like right at that moment when the, the Japanese planes have arrived. So, you know, it's too late, really, to do anything about it. So... There was that. There was the, the problem with the, the Army radar in the northern part of Ohio, or, or excuse me, Oahu, you know, the, the uh, island where Pearl Harbor is located, uh, where, you know, they're getting these blips on the radar, but they don't really understand that it means Japanese attackers. Um, it's just kind of a tragic comedy of errors in some ways, too. Yeah, you, you said uh, a perfect storm, and it, and it really seems to be. And I was reading about the, uh, actually talking about St. Louis, the USS St. Louis, which apparently rammed one of those midget subs on the way out of the, the harbor. They were kind of limping out and getting going. There was a, uh, 
a gentleman who was on the uh, St. Louis from Warrington who passed away in 2010. But his his story is very interesting about what happened on that day and uh, how, uh, you know, 50 caliber machine guns were concentrating. I, you know, I was doing some prep for the show. I was I was kind of surprised at um, the torpedo planes and then the bombers and that the ability of them, how they approached uh, Pearl Harbor and how they approached the ships and what their t- main targets were. They had, obviously, their main targets were the air, uh, aircraft carriers, but they weren't there. And the battleship seems to be like um, this big, like, uh, oh, uh, target as it relates to just for status. And th- they wanted to, just these are my words, try to cripple the... Uh, status of the United States by by killing their battleships and you know I think one was in dry dock but they totally left the oil that was in the tanks there by the by the airfield completely you know they didn't bomb that at all and uh, I was I was just surprised at the um, of course this person that I was reading they commented about the inaccuracy and the secondary and third targets that had to uh, the pilots had to go for uh, their accuracy, though, was less than 50%, and on the second wave, I think it was like 29% or something like that. So it, the, the devastation could have been a whole lot worse had they been more accurate. And I know we kind of look back at things uh, with our technological minds today and you know, about communications, like, well, why didn't they do this? Why didn't they do that? Well, it was not that sophisticated at that time. Yeah, and you pointed out a really good point. Um, the, they left the what was called the tank farm unscathed, and that was the about six months' worth of fuel and oil storage for the Pacific Fleet. So had that been knocked out, you really are crippling the mobility of the surviving ships more so than you otherwise would have had. So that, that plays out in some of the early naval battles of the war that we don't necessarily have major fuel problems because of the, the tank farm is left unscathed. Um, one of the things I, 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 have a, I have a forthcoming book coming out about um, the, the, the history of the Army in the Pacific-Asia War. And one of the points I make in there is that um, really the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor and its environs was an attack against American sea power and air power, and everybody else was just kind of in the way. Um, so they, they had to prioritize because they knew they were only going to have surprise for so long. And so they, they prioritized, like you said, hitting the battleships. Um, in the years leading up to Pearl Harbor, There was a raging argument in naval circles um, as to whether battleships would remain as the the sort of, you know, capital ships, the the important ships in war, or whether aircraft carriers would supplant them. In retrospect, we know it's the latter. But, you know, as of the day of Pearl Harbor, the argument was still going on. So battleships uh, were really quite valuable targets. And, uh, you know, you said absolutely right, uh, the prestige. Um, So to, to sink those battleships meant a lot diplomatically, I suppose, to the Japanese, but more so than, than militarily. Um, I would not have wanted to have been a uh, Japanese aviator in on the second wave, because by then, the element of surprise is lost, and every anti-aircraft gun on the entire island of Oahu is, is active. Um, so it's no accident that the majority of their casualties happened during the second wave attack. So, the, the, so they decide not to launch a third wave, because they thought it would be too prohibitively costly in casualties, and they didn't want their carriers hanging around in those waters about 300 miles north of the Hawaiian Islands because they knew the U.S. carriers could, could uh, you know, perhaps hunt them down and promote uh, and prompt an engagement. And those carriers were under the, the command of ultimately a very famous admiral, uh, William Halsey, who was doing just that by the night of Pearl Harbor. 
after the attack, he's doing everything he can to try and find the Japanese carriers, but unsuccessfully. But why didn't we also report that right after the attack on Pearl Harbor, there was an attack on the Philippines? Yeah, within a day. Yeah, um, within and, hours. You know, in some ways, in some ways, Ellie, this is the bigger fiasco uh, because um, General uh, Douglas MacArthur, who was the the American commander in the Philippines at this point, um, is informed. He's woken up with a call, a very early morning call about what had happened at Pearl Harbor, and somehow he came away with the impression that Pearl Harbor had been a disaster for the Japanese, um, and yet he doesn't have his his command on on full alert. Um, and, and specifically to protect his uh, his bombers and his other planes that he has uh, based north of Manila. And so within about a 24-hour period of Pearl Harbor, the Japanese scored quite a coup there and that they destroyed most of his air power on the ground, which in turn, the consequence of that, it left them in a very good position to be able to invade the Philippines wherever they wanted uh, and also blockade it uh, with their own sea power as well. So it had disastrous consequences, um, and it was arguably as big a screw-up as, as Pearl Harbor from an American point of view, I guess. Um, you know, but uh, but it's not, you know, not quite as well known. Right, and I I always feel that it's those lesser well-known facts that really help to bring a puzzle, pull a puzzle together. And and see, for me, because I love history, just like you love history, John. I mean, I find this stuff like so intriguing. You know, it's like a mystery novel to me. Right. You know, but when sure. I when That's I look at the total of history, you know, and I don't want to sound like a broken record here, you know, but when I continue to go back and I study more and more and more, you know, I go all the way back to, you know, the whole thing with Columbus. You know, Columbus never made it here to America, but why do we have Columbus Day? You know, when you look at what Columbus was about, he wasn't about anything that had to do with anything that was the United States. But we we now all, you know, have a federal holiday for somebody that really basically never landed here. Never landed and not only that was responsible for the murdering of indigenous people across the Caribbean area. We look at World War 1 with the Lusitania, we look at December 7th with Pearl Harbor, we look at 9/11, it led to war, we look at you know, we keep going on and on and on and on and on and it's a bigger mosaic than just that particular situation. Uh, you know, inevitably and always, it, it really is. And um, that's that's I suppose that's why historians like to try and get to the root and branch of things and explore the, the, the causes and consequences. And, uh, you know, I guess, as we always hope classically, we can learn some lessons. Right. History. You know, um, whether we do is. is <laughs> You're right, John. Altogether. Because even, even historians, people... I'm not talking about other, other right. people, even historians struggle to learn the lessons. Because so. even when There's we look at unique about us. the sinking of the, the uh, Titanic. You know, we've we've glamorized that with a movie and, oh, you know, I'll never do, you know, and nearer my God to thee becomes this great, you know. But when we really look at the story behind the Titanic, you know, there was a much darker story there. You know, Arrogance. It, well, it, it had to do with the Federal Reserve Bank, which, of course, as we know, is not a bank, it's not federal and funds all the wars in the world on both sides. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I don't know that, Ellie. So. Well, uh, you know. If people were to do their history, just do a little research and see who was on the Lusitania, I mean, who was on the, the Titanic, you know, Mr. Guggenheim, Mr. Astor, you know, um, Mr. Strauss, people that were supposed to be on the Federal Reserve Bank Board, but were against it. And they were invited by Mr. J.P. Morgan to be on that flight, that trip, which was the inaugural trip. And Mr. J.P. Morgan at the last minute wasn't on the trip. But the other people were. 
As soon as they sank, guess what happened with the Federal Reserve Bank? It went into effect. And so, you know, as historians, if we're not telling, really, really, really coming back and telling the story and revising it so that students are learning a different truth. Well, if we're not telling the truth. Right. That's, that's, Notice that's I said the a different thing. truth. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know I, when I looked at uh, this battle and I saw the, the Japanese, um, the track in which their ships were taking uh, their raw materials, they had to go in between uh, Asia and the Philippines or um, down in that area. And, and the United States could have easily had cut that off in a blockade. And so going to the Philippines made easy sense. But what about the other islands between Hawaii and uh, the Philippines? When did those fall along the way, like Midway, et cetera? Well, you only, Midway never falls, but you, you only have a few that are considered by either side to be of any you know, military value. And um, the best example, of course, is Wake Island, which was a, you know, a tiny American possession out in the middle of the, you know, the Pacific. And uh, so the Japanese invade that within, I think, within about a week of Pearl Harbor. Um, and didn't really earmark many troops to, to go after. There was a small contingent of Marines. There were civilian contractors. There was some Navy there. Not, you know, major ships of any kind, but um, there was a small airfield. Um, so the initial Japanese invasion failed, and so they came up with, back with more troops and ultimately took the island. Uh, Midway, of course, is uh, is attacked by the, the spring, late May and into June, and this, you know, presages the, one of the great naval, naval battles ever. Uh, the Battle of Midway. Um, but fortunately for the Americans, you know, they, they hang on to Midway. Um, the Philippine Islands ends up as this fiasco of a campaign from about the aftermath of Pearl Harbor through the early part of June 1942. Um, and you could argue that was one of the great humanitarian disasters in, in modern American military history because of the, the POWs, the right. Bataan Death March, the, you know, all of these things that are, that are you know, still with us today that I think we understand fairly well. Now, we, uh, we're going to get ready to take a break here in a, in a minute, but um, you're listening to John McManus, who's award-winning professor, author, and military historian. He's written over 12 books. He's currently working on a two-volume history of the Army in the Pacific Asia Theater during World War II, the first volume slated for publication next June and July. And the first chapter of that book covers the Pearl Harbor attack. So would be one that if you're a military buff and especially a World War II buff, you want to you probably know about um, Dr. McManus and uh, his books. You probably have them all on your shelf. And if you don't, check it out at the, at the library. But we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, the aftermath of the of what took place at Pearl Harbor and how the United States uh, recovered. We've been talking a little bit about that, but we're going to go in a little bit more depth. This is Arnold Stricker with Ellie Wharton of Intune. You're listening to KWRHLP 92.9 FM, your community radio station in Webster Groves, Missouri. back to In Tune. This is Arnold Stricker with Ellie Wharton. And, also- and, and you know what? I just want to say this. John, you're on the phone with us still. John McManus. Yep. This yep. is here. so interesting. This, this conversation, I love it. I love what you're sharing with us. We're okay. talking. Yeah, we're, it is fascinating. It is. We're talking about Pearl Harbor, where we are on the 77th anniversary of uh, that date that will live in infamy, as President Franklin Delano Roosevelt stated. 
And uh, we were talking about a variety of things, what led up to this, kind of the, uh, my words, the dysfunction of what was going on at the time, the perfect storm, that everything happened that could go wrong. And uh, it was, we were very fortunate that some things actually went right for the United States, uh, i.e. some carriers were not in port. Um, the guns were trained on the second wave of aircraft that were coming through, so there were not as many uh, accurate strikes. So the devastation could have been even worse. The fuel tanks, which housed six months of, of fuel, could have been destroyed, which would have really crippled us. So um, where I kind of want to go with this is, um, I, I actually, I had a kind of a question before we started this. Was the United States considering uh, a new, um, I need to get my words right here, uh, a new class of battleships at this time, or did that take place after the fact? Or were they working on the New Jersey class, or was that uh, something that happened after the battle? They were already working on it. Uh, one of the rare things uh, Congress had done to really uh, you know, improve American military readiness was a decision in 1936 to, to build a two-ocean Navy. Um, because, as you know, you know, you want a you want a new modern navy. That doesn't just happen overnight. You got to plan years ahead, and the shipbuilding takes a long time. It's expensive, it's kind of thing. So, um, so yeah, already as of 1936, there were plans on the books to to have a new class of battleships. Many of those that were at Pearl Harbor uh, were, were starting to get antiquated. Um, there was a push for more aircraft carriers from the the aviation folks on the you know in the navy. Um, so already you were seeing this. And, and, and I should say, too, in a more immediate sense, um, as, as you probably know, you know, in 1940 and then in 1941, uh, the Congress had barely passed the first ever peacetime draft in, in American history. And so, um, you know, already we had this kind of short of war mobilization um, of the armed forces for war. Um, and the Navy then is just just one part of that, arguably maybe the most expensive part of it. Which, which, if you are a conspiracy theorist, or you're somebody who just like sees all this stuff and you go, all they needed was a spark to light the fumes that were already accumulating. What, what, what in is way, your, your response to that? The, the U.S. really, you know, in, in a way, was at war already before Pearl Harbor. In in this sense, um, that the Lend-Lease program that uh, that the Congress had passed after Roosevelt's election to the presidency for the third time in 1940, uh, and with a with a democratically controlled Congress, his party, um, but a growing consensus that you know, on both sides of the partisan divide that the U.S. needed to at least do something to help the hard-pressed allies at that stage, while not necessarily sending our own troops overseas. But what had happened is that as the U.S. decides to be, as Roosevelt put it, the great arsenal of democracy, helping supply the British and so on and so forth, um, this leads to, to what uh, military folks nowadays call mission creep. Um, in other words, how are we going to get all this stuff over to, to Britain and wherever else? Um, so um, the Royal Navy is hard-pressed, and so the United States Navy then sort of picks up some of that slack and helps escort some of these ships or move some of the material um, at least as far as Iceland. And so the, the Roosevelt administration had already announced that um, the, the U.S. was going to consider those sea lanes to be theirs. And uh, so the Navy was already fighting a war with German U-boats in the fall of 1941. It's just that neither the German government nor the U.S. government um, felt that they really wanted to formally declare war at this point. Um, so uh, and, and, the, and the Pacific side... Uh, the negotiations between the United States and Japan 
were, were so tense because of the, the embargo and because of Japan's aggressiveness in China. And uh, ironically enough, what had really accelerated the conflict there was um, the Japanese occupying first the northern part of Vietnam, but then all of Vietnam in reaction to the collapse of France in 1940 and the inability of the French to control their soon-to-be former colony, um, that the, the Americans sort of react to that with the embargo. So you could say in a narrow sense the Americans go to war with Japan over Vietnam, though they don't really care about Vietnam as such. They care about the you know, the balance of power the in balance the of power. continent and what that means. Yeah. So that's right. So yeah, so there wasn't any kind of, you know, shooting going on between US and Japanese um, you know, during the weeks leading up to Pearl Harbor, but there was a sense that uh, that war was probably imminent, at least for the military folks in the know. Um, for the average citizen, though, you know, if you kept in touch with the, the headlines at the time, you'd know that there were negotiations going on with Japan, but you might not have sensed the urgency of the crisis that was brewing. And then, too, you know, one of the, the uh, statements that really stuck out in my mind was when President Roosevelt said, our righteous might. When I hear things like that, you know, to me, that's a code word. Um, you know, because now we're starting to talk about beliefs, religious beliefs, and we know that the Japanese held, held a very different religious belief than Americans. And so, you know, that there's that hidden, you know, as Christians, we're getting ready to go out there, we're going to do the righteous thing because we are doing this in the name of God. And, you know, that's always a good way to rile up the, the base. <laughs> you know, it's been riling up the base ever since, you know, when you start to break down, you know, people's religious beliefs against people who have different religious beliefs. I mean, and that's a, I know that's a far stretching thing, but again, you know, you have to listen to words that are being used because those are codes that somebody is listening to and understands. Well, in this, in this case, you know, Roosevelt doesn't necessarily, you know, allude to scripture or any kind of religious no. sort of reference, but he does say, he is saying quite clearly that the U.S., uh, you know, has a kind of righteous cause to fight. In exactly. And, and, and where, he, where he's coming from on that is that at the time he makes that speech, he knows that something on the order of 2,403 Americans have just been killed, um, in, in his view, in cold blood. Um, and so this, you know, this is certainly a rallying kind of thing, not just for him and his administration, but I think for all Americans. Exactly. And that's always um, been know, the rallying so, thing. You know, I mean, even when you go back to 9-11, you know, just about 2,500 people were killed in 9-11. You know, but again, it's the thing that that righteous might. We got to take this. We've been attacked. Boom. We're going after those uh, those Muslims over there. And, you, you know, I just see it as it's a, it's always a case of uh, of an uh, of an us as a Christian nation against somebody else that's not considered to be a Christian nation. And. You know, it creates that righteous feeling of God is on our side. Does that make sense? Well, sure, sure. <laughs> um, but I, I don't know that Roosevelt is really making a, a Christian argument in 1941. He's making an American argument that the United States has been attacked in, in a, what he believes is a very treacherous way, and many Americans did too, and they felt that that had to be, you know, had to be. Uh, uh, defeated, dealt with, however you want, however you want to call it. But um, it is this kind of unique moment when you see, no matter where you are in the political divide, you know you're you're pretty much on board with that. There was only one dissenting vote. That's right. Um, when he asked for the declaration of war that day, it was Congresswoman Jeanette Rankin, right. who was uh, a suffragette and also a pacifist. So she stuck to her beliefs, but she didn't even try to run for reelection in 1942 because she knew she would have no chance. 
Absolutely. Yeah, but, absolutely. You know, so. So how does the uh, how does the U.S. respond and recover after uh, December seventh uh, as it relates to kind of getting their footing back? I, and I would be curious as to uh, if you've investigated the Japanese perspective and response to the Americans' response. That sounds, sounds like double talk, but you know when you when you see you know you see the movie that I I, I fear we've awakened a sleeping giant. You know, Tora, 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 you see that movie, and a realization on some people in the Japanese uh, Empire and, and Navy that, oh my gosh, you know, I think we've really screwed up here. Um, you know, how does the U.S. recover from this after uh, December 7th? Yeah, the U.S., of course, is going to then kick in and have a massive mobilization. Uh, Roosevelt is going to take out his declaration of war. Um, he really, though, you probably know, wanted to to be in the war in Europe more so because he felt that Germany was the greater threat. Right. So there was an uncomfortable few days after Pearl Harbor when he didn't really, you know, feel as though he could ask for a declaration of war and that the, the public would be for that. But Hitler lets him off the hook by declaring war on, on the U.S. And, uh, uh, and then Mussolini soon followed for Italy. But uh, the Japanese, in leading up to Pearl Harbor and deciding to do this, had uh, had had met in late September the the, uh, the highest-ranking Japanese and, and Hirohito, and they had uh, tried to decide among three options. Option one was basically to do what the Americans wanted, uh, to, to, to get out of China, uh, to back down and start to open the flow of resources from the U.S. again. Uh, and they were never going to do that, given their, their uh, viewpoint at that stage and their policy. Option two was attack the Soviet Union, which at that point was hard-pressed by a German invasion, which is sort of the really kind of the key moment of World War II when Germany attacks the Soviet Union in the summer of 41. Um, and that was, you know, they considered that because they could have gotten some oil and timber resources in Siberia and near Mongolia and so on and so forth. Uh, option three was really what the Navy wanted, which is to attack not just the U.S. fleet at Pearl Harbor, but um, the, all sorts of targets all over the, the Pacific, including the Dutch East Indies, so on and so forth. And so Japan had basically elected uh, by the evening of Pearl Harbor to fight a two-front war. One war uh, against China on the Asian mainland, uh, which is sort of the Army's war, and then a war against uh, the United States and uh, European colonial powers throughout the Pacific um, and, and the islands of the Pacific. So, um, so the U.S. response at this stage is uh, to, to play for time and to, to kick in with its massive industrial capacity. Recruiting stations were packed with young men wanting to, to volunteer already by the next morning, by the Monday morning after Pearl Harbor. Um, but, but eventually you're going to have a much wider reaching draft. About two-thirds of those who served in the war uh, were draftees. About 15 million-plus Americans served in the war eventually. So um, Pearl Harbor kind of, I, I always like to say, sort of undercuts the Japanese strategic object from the beginning um, because they're predicating the whole strategy on a short war with the United States, uh, knockout punch, but really kind of through this surprise attack on Pearl Harbor, they guarantee that the war will not be of that nature because the American public is so four square behind defeating Japan um, that the, the Japanese kind of undercut it. Now, there's that, that quote you mentioned is often attributed to Admiral Yamamoto, who was you know the mastermind of the, the Pearl Harbor attack. And there's no evidence he actually said that, but there's a lot of evidence he probably would have felt that um, because he... He knew a lot about the U.S. He had served here. He didn't want war with the U.S. Um, and he understood, as many of the, uh, the high-ranking Japanese officers did. They're not stupid. They understood that 
uh, when it came to the tail of the tape, they were going to be on the wrong end of it. And so they knew they had bitten off a lot uh, that they might not be able to chew. Wow. There's a lot to think about. But it's interesting, like you said, that the very next day, you know, that the implementation of the draft, you know, which we are still talking about today, you know, we can always look at what what actually ended up being achieved. You know, just like after 9-11, we had Homeland Security formed. So, you know, we look at these situations and they, they do, you know, those are situations that always grab our hearts. And what they do is they attack our emotions so that we are led to to do something that the government wants us to do that maybe we would not have done if we did not have that emotional trigger. Well, certainly those kind of events will trigger emotions. <laughs> well, they do. And if, and if, and, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. If you look what, but you know, I think ever since the, the United States um, has been sort of terrified and preoccupied in the idea of being on the wrong end of a first strike like that. And, um, you know, it's one of the things that helps lead to a complete reorganization of the armed forces, the, the creation of the Department of Defense, the creation of the Central Intelligence Agency, um, you know, on and on it goes. Like you said, yeah. after 9-11, the creation of Homeland Security, trying to react to these things and, and try and make sure it doesn't happen again, which is a lot better, easier said than done. So if you had to sum up uh, some lessons learned from uh, 77 years ago, uh, how would you... Uh, what things would you say and, and how would you describe what they are? Well, the one I see as a military historian, uh, so this tends to be my focus, is much better inter-service cooperation uh, and coordination. Really, is You really see with Pearl Harbor the Army and the Navy working across purposes quite amateurishly and quite inexcusably. Um, and it's, it's really part of what is behind the, the uh, failure of the combat air patrol, the, 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 uh, the lack of understanding of how to read the radar correctly, the communications issues, things like that, um, point out the fact that you just can't afford the luxury of this, this kind of silly uh, kind of cross-purposes rivalry. And, and uh, I do think we've come a long way from that by this day and age. From a uh, statesman diplomatic point of view, um, <laughs> I mean... There's so much ground to cover there uh, of all the, the moves that both sides could have done differently, that these are two countries. And when you really look at the full sweep of their relations um, in the last 150 some odd years, most of that time they've gotten along really, really well, if not been close allies and friends. And yet you have this tragic moment. We might argue, you know, four and a half years or a decade moment, whatever it is, um, in which they fought one of the most barbarous wars ever uh, on record. Um, it was a terrible tragedy. And, and the, the more I study it, the more I see the similarities between the two sides. And so you can say that, that there was a kind of uh, a misfire among the statesmen. Japan was, was far too aggressive. And the United States, partially because of its position of weakness diplomatically and militarily in Asia, was in very little position to shape Japanese behavior as, it would, as American statesmen would have hoped. Um, and so, you know, you then you see this kind of tragic kind of lockstep toward war, um, which I don't see as anything inevitable. But it's, it's only my opinion. Um, but I, I do think that there's some good lessons to learn there about the importance of at least having a, uh, you know, uh, some level of military strength to draw upon as a deterrent um, and, and a better understanding of the motives of what could be your adversary at that point. 
Great comments. You've been listening to uh, John McManus, award-winning professor, author, and military historian at the Missouri University of Science and Technology. He's uh, author of 12, soon to be 13 books. And John, we greatly appreciate you coming on today and talking about um, 77 years ago on December 7th at Pearl Harbor and giving us a lot of different kinds of insight. And I really appreciate that you're a historian and a military historian and that your expertise is <laughs> World War II. Exactly. It's been extremely fascinating and uh, really open to uh, some future conversations about some other items that we have kind of uh, locked in our back closet here that we like to, uh, we want to talk about. So hope that you would consider sure. that. Yeah, John, you've sure. been excellent. And I tell you, I hope that our listeners have found this to be as intriguing as I have, because uh, I love historians and I love history. And it's always good to be able to go back and and kind of look at the, I, I guess, the, the more succinct, you know, non-emotional, more logical points that go into our history and the making of our history. So I just really have enjoyed this conversation a lot. Sure, me too. I appreciate the opportunity to be on, and uh, sure, anytime. John, thanks very much. Hope you have a great weekend. All right, thanks. You too. Bye now.